The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. We can see that illuminated sign that marks the end of the journey. This vaccine will help us to get past this pandemic once and for all. We need people to have faith that this vaccine is safe and that they should take it. The thing that's going to stop us from seeing the end of this pandemic are people going, oh, I'm not so sure. You're listening to Bloomberg Westminster, your daily guide to British politics. Good afternoon, I'm Roger Hearing. And I'm Caroline Hepke. A warm welcome to the programme, where we're going to begin today with a warning from Labour, which says that businesses face a £50 billion bombshell unless a series of government pandemic aid programmes are extended. Many firms, of course, are running out of cash, and the party has urged the Chancellor, Rishi Sunak, not to wait until his budget on the 3rd of March to prolong things like business rates relief, the VAT deferral, and, of course, his flagship furlough programme. Here's the shadow business minister, Lucy Powell. We can't wait till the budget now. Unless it's addressed, this bombshell is going to blow a big hole in our economy and it's going to, I'm, I'm, I'm really worried it's going to lead to tens of thousands of businesses going bust. Because, of course, many of these businesses don't even know if they can reopen in April yet, let alone start to pay these bills. Well, Labour's figure is a rough estimate of the extra costs firms will face if the programmes expire scheduled over the next month or two. Well, let's bring in our guest today, Tim Farron, MP for Westmoreland and Lonsdale, formerly, of course, Liberal Democrat leader. Tim, welcome to the programme and thanks for being with us. Uh, first of all, do you support Labour's call for early extensions to all these uh, support schemes as a way of trying to help business? Well, me personally and the Liberal Democrats have been asking for this for many months because I think certainty is is crucial for for businesses. You know, I represent uh, a part of the world where hospitality and tourism is the dominant employer and where we have the highest number of people on furlough anywhere in the United Kingdom and had one of the biggest increases in unemployment. And, and so we see the impact uh, hugely. And it's important not to be churlish because I think that, you know, the furlough scheme has made a huge difference in protecting businesses and protecting families' incomes. The problem is the government needs to understand, of course, is that wages only make up, I don't know, let's say 70% of a business's uh, outgoings, and getting your wages paid is one thing. But if you're having to pay the other 30% of your expenditure from a a non-existent income and you've no savings left, you're knackered and you're going to fail. And that's our great worry, is the government having been generous up to a point by penny-pinching and certainly leaving things to the last minute before they decide whether they are going to be generous or not, is pushing lots of businesses that were saved, you know, in April, May last year into a position where they will die now uh, before um, the uh, opportunity they have potentially Mm. to open up once the lockdown ends. Yeah, and of course, all of that still depends on the pandemic, doesn't it? How effective do you think the government is being when it comes to testing for the new variant? Because that's the real risk when it comes to the vaccine rollout. How effective do you think testing of variants has been? Honestly, I think this has been one of the really weakest areas of the government's work throughout. And you can understand, you know, 
to a degree why they were uh, so stunned by this last uh, March uh, and uh, the test and trace system took so long to get going. And when it did get going, it was terribly, terribly patchy. Um, but now we're in a situation where we're in a race against time. And to be able to uh, deal with the new variants and to make sure we get vaccinated uh, across the country before these get a, you know, a, a serious hold, that's, that's crucial. And it feels like the government has put all its eggs in the vaccination basket. And, you know, the vaccination is going pretty well. Let's not pretend otherwise. That's something I think that um, the NHS needs to take huge credit for and ministers have made some sensible decisions. But they seem to have forgotten that test and trace is equally important. Um, indeed, maybe they never grasped it in the first place. And, and now it becomes all the more important, the fact that mm. they don't have the... The, the infrastructure in place, at least not in any kind of um, comprehensive way, that's potentially threatening the effectiveness of the vaccination programme. Tim, let me move you on to a subject that I know is, is very important to you at the moment uh, and one that is coming into greater focus, which is an environmental issue. It's to do with mm. the plans for the first deep coal mine in 30 years in this country. Cumbria County Council giving the green light to the £165 million Woodhouse Colliery Scheme. Now, the Housing Secretary, Robert Jenrick, has waved through the plans. The mine's going to dig up coking coal for steel production from under the Irish Sea, and it's going to emit, I think the estimate is, 8.4 million tonnes of carbon dioxide annually. Now, it's been heavily criticised, as you know, by environmentalists mm. who say it's going to undermine the message the UK is trying to give when it hosts the COP26 International Climate Conference in November. But it does have a lot of local support. It's going to provide around 500 jobs locally at a time when jobs are very hard to come by particularly in your neck of the woods why do you oppose it then if it will provide something for people at this difficult time so the first thing to say is i've been fighting this mine for two and a half years now i put several spanners in the uh, in the works and i'm i'm pleased at least uh, that it's become a national issue a national story because it, it should have been some time ago uh, the simple reality is this is a, uh, a project that is wrong on so many fronts. Uh, the United Kingdom cannot take a lead or be taken seriously or have any real credibility uh, as it seeks to, you know, the presidency of the of COP26 if it is uh, going to engage in deep coal mining and uh, increasing our burning of fossil fuels. We will be laughed out of the room and we will lack any leadership. The arguments that are made for it... Um, uh, which were not the initial arguments made, but have been put forward more latterly. I think are bogus, um, but they deserve uh, dealing with one by one. The, do the job issue, first of all, I mean, I am absolutely committed to tackling the, the serious need uh, in these communities, particularly on the West Coast. But there's only one thing worse than no hope, and that is false hope. And the simple reality is that both the steel industry in particular and indeed, you know, the markets in general are committed to moving towards zero carbon. This is a, a coal mine that's meant to have a life that takes it past 2050. But if we're going to have an industry that goes to zero carbon or being carbon neutral by 2030, it just stands to absolute logic and reason that the demand for the output of this mine will dry up within a decade. So the jobs may begin. It's possible the jobs might actually emerge, but mm -hmm. they won't last. And, and you will be left with a devastated community that had its hope raised and then dashed. If the government is committed to green energy, and here we are on the west coast of Cumbria with, you know, tidal energy just there on your, on your doorstep, so to speak, or potential tidal energy, offshore wind and all the rest of it, there is the opportunity to create proper, long-lasting jobs that don't 
pollute the atmosphere, but actually help our green recovery. Hmm. So then, come on, the, the public are not daft. Why does it have overwhelming support then in Copeland, where it's cited? And also, isn't the Liberal Democrat view to support localism? So the, obviously, the, 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 there is a level of support locally because of that kind of jobs argument and you understand that completely. But, you know, the government has just let down West Cumbria by refusing to invest in nuclear. And I'm somebody who, you know, believes in uh, tackling climate change. And I think nuclear is part of a mix. And, and that would be an opportunity to create better jobs, more jobs, longer lasting jobs. And the government has failed to invest in, uh, in the nuclear industry on the West Coast and has instead um, got behind a mine which will create fewer jobs that won't last. And so the, the the answer, I think, is there's a desperation, and I totally understand it, um, uh, about what any jobs will do. And that's what um, I think has happened here. And I think local politicians playing to that market rather than leading um, real jobs that will last in the long term, which would be the leadership we actually need. But, but, but in real terms, it's to do with, obviously, steelmaking. Coking coal mm. is needed for steelmaking. Steelmaking does still go on in this country. And if there isn't got from here, it'll have to be imported, which simply adds to the problem, surely, of climate change, because you have all the emissions that come from bringing the stuff here in the first place. Yeah, so it, that, that would be a great argument if it wasn't obvious that this mine is going to export 83% of its coal to the European Union. <laughs> the idea that this is about us having a domestic market and meeting that domestic market. Um, I can come to that as a separate issue in a moment, but that's bogus because the massive majority of the coal in this mine will be exported doing exactly the things that you just set out. So, but the, the other issue is, is this. So it is vital that we move away from fossil fuels in every part of our, um, uh, of our economy. And the steel industry is one of those that finds it most difficult to do. And yet you've now got movement towards renewable forms of, uh, of energy, replacing coking coal, and that is beginning to happen throughout the industry, and the industry is aiming by 2030 to be carbon neutral. So the two things to say about that are, first of all, if the industry is successful, then this coal mine will fail because there won't be the demand for it. Mm. And if it's not successful, it'll because things like this happened, and it made the industry complacent about old-fashioned, dirty practices rather than moving to the new ones that we desperately need to do if we're going to save the planet. Um, so if the government does go ahead in the face of um, criticism and, and support this um, uh, this coal mine, what does it do for COP26, which is meant to be the moment when Boris Johnson can kind of lead on the green agenda and perhaps also get a little closer to the Biden administration? That That is their priority. What does this do to COP26? Completely undermines us. And there are plenty of people... You know, countries around the world who are, you know, sniffy about climate change, feel that they ought to do something about it, aren't particularly motivated. And the best excuse you've got to do nothing when you want to do nothing is to have somebody who's supposedly in a leadership position being a hypocrite. And because then that means you've got every excuse to not follow the line yourself. And that's what the problem is. The United Kingdom will be depicted uh, by friend and foe alike as uh, terrible hypocrites on this issue. And I, I think that within number 10, I get the sense that there is a conscious desire to actually uh, be more intelligent and uh, more reasonable, rational when it comes to the environment, and they want to do good things. I think Alex Sharma is a good appointment in his position, and I think he means it. Um, and so if I was him, I'd be saying to Boris Johnson, you either change this decision or I'm out of here, because yeah. his credibility is totally in line. How can he lead 
the United Kingdom's attempts to lead the world in the right direction on climate change when we are ourselves sanctioning the opening yeah. of a new deep coal mine. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Let's have a look at what else is making the news in the world of politics. Yes, well, we begin with the pandemic. As a scientific advisor to the government has said that the UK's plan for extra local testing to detect and suppress new variants is unlikely to work unless it's done on a larger scale. Mike uh, Tilsley spoke to Bloomberg after the government said that there's no reason to think that the South African variant will derail the UK's recovery. Uh, This after England's Deputy Chief Medical Officer, Professor Jonathan Van Tam, yesterday said that UK case numbers of this particular strain are very small. The stories and the headlines around variant viruses and vaccines are a bit scary and I wish they weren't. We are watching this and I said before that the watchword is vigilance. Well as part of that effort to keep the variants intact that uh, Jonathan Van Tam was talking about a new mandatory testing regime is coming into place from next week for all travellers arriving in the UK. The Health Secretary, Matt Hancock, says every passenger who lands in Britain will have to get screened on days two and eight of their self-isolation, and the new rules will apply to those heading into hotel quarantine and those isolating at home. Mm. Meanwhile, when it comes to trade, Britain wants to prioritise depth rather than speed in completing work on a free trade agreement with the United States. That's according to the UK's ambassador in Washington, Karen Pierce. Pierce spoke at a virtual event hosted by uh, the Washington International Trade Association. She, she said that Britain anticipates that the Biden administration may want to add issues like labour and the environment. Pierce also said that the UK sees room to expand services trade. Meanwhile, Boris Johnson is facing a potentially major rebellion in the Commons this evening. Government whips are trying to get rid of Lord David Alton's amendment to the trade bill that would give judges the power to block trade deals with states that have committed genocide. Another amendment from the Tory backbencher Bob Neill would hand the genocide decision back to MPs rather than judges and thereby stop the Alton amendment from coming in front of MPs. The rebels' ringleader, Ian Duncan Smith, has said it's going to be a very tight vote. Mm, Okay, so we'll report back to you on that one tomorrow. Uh, Right, let's get into uh, the rest of our conversation this hour. The rollout of the vaccine in the UK has been hailed as a huge success with more than 13 million people now vaccinated. But analysis of NHS England's COVID-19 vaccine figures by the Royal College of GPs actually shows that vaccine take-up amongst BAME communities remains worryingly low. 91% of all recipients of COVID-19 jabs have been white, despite BAME BAME people making up 13.6% of the population. 
And so whilst the Home Secretary Preeti Patel warned only yesterday that lives will be lost if online disinformation about COVID-19 vaccines is not tackled, the data shows that people of black ethnicity are half as likely as people of white ethnicity to get vaccinated and people of Asian ethnicity are under two-thirds as likely as their white counterparts to accept vaccination. Well, joining us to discuss this is Kauza Zaman, who has founded a nationwide volunteer-led campaign called, quite simply, Take the COVID-19 Vaccine Campaign. Great to have you on the programme, Kauza. I'm interested to understand your goal. It's about empowering local communities to counter misinformation. Just tell us about what your campaign involves. Good morning, uh, precisely. Uh, The campaign is really uh, designed uh, to encourage uptake of the vaccine, and particularly within these minority uh, groups that you've mentioned who are simply not taking the vaccine in the same numbers that we see in other uh, communities. What we're doing, which is quite unique in this campaign, is we're bringing together all of the different uh, sections of communities who are working on vaccine uptake. So they range from uh, researchers and academics uh, leading uh, vaccine hesitancy research in the UK, all the way to faith and community leaders, business leaders, people, senior figures uh, within health. Because what we recognise is in order to deal with this issue, Mm. we need all sections and all parts of communities to come together to tackle it. Well, Kaza, just, just tell us, because you've got, I, I think, some personal reasons and involvement in this, the reason you've got into the campaign. I believe your mother was initially hesitant to take the vaccine. Tell us about that. Precisely. So my mother is, uh, I, I'm a Bangladeshi uh, background, my mother's uh, 60, but she's in a fairly high risk. Uh, category uh, from COVID-19 and uh, when the first vaccines were being approved, this is in uh, late December, early January, I asked her whether she was taking the vaccine and she said no and she said no because of uh, three principal factors. One, she was unsure about the ingredients, she was unsure about side effects but also she wanted the information uh, in a translatable format. She understands English but she likes to interpret technical information in in Bengali and that information was simply not available so I recognize that that stage you know I'm a barrister uh, and I I deal with voluminous research on a daily basis and it took me an hour over an hour to find the information so I realized there'd be a problem so we as a campaign group really uh, set up a website uh, where we have all of that information now in a fairly interactive way Mm. Uh, it's it's available at the moment uh, in translation in eight, within the click of one button in 18 different languages. So there's lots of specific issues which we're hopefully uh, trying to deal with. Mm, yeah, that's really interesting. Um, but I suppose my question is, I mean, this we, we've been concerned for a while, haven't we, about online misinformation around so many aspects of the pandemic. But isn't it surely an issue much more for social media companies than grassroots organisations? Is that not where certainly the misinformation sort of part or element of this should should be addressed yeah i mean that's an interesting uh, point i think all media companies all social media uh, organizations have a part to play because that's the vehicle or the venue by which a lot of the misinformation is coming through but i think the issues are a lot more nuanced uh, than it might uh, appear uh, and and 
and it's based on really research, understanding why those communities in particular are not taking the vaccine. And actually, what the research shows is that safety is the primary concern across all communities, but it's particularly mm. pronounced in minority communities because of particular anti-vax messages. So to give you one example, within the black community, the, uh, the, the, there's a rumour out there that it affects fertility. Uh, that means, uh, according to Professor Freeman of Oxford University, who's leading research and advisor to our campaign, his research interviewing 15,000 people has shown that black women are one of the most vaccine-hesitant. So it's about dealing with social media companies, but it, it's also about dealing head-on with people's genuine concerns and not dismissing it simply as a uh, as a myth or a unwarranted concern. It's about really engaging uh, with people's uh, concerns. And, and, and the way I say we need to look at it is we need to explain it in a much more sophisticated way rather than simply saying to people, here's the vaccine, take it, which seems to be the strategy. We need to, we need to convey people that it's a balance of risk. So mm. to say people, look, uh, it usually takes 10 years to create a vaccine. We've done it in 12, 12 months. Now, we don't know what the long-term side effects might be in five years because it's not been out in the community for that long. But on the balance of risk, based on what we know the damage can do, we believe you should take it. So it's about messaging yeah. as well. Kaza, I mean, we, we spoke to some researcher, in fact, at uh, Bristol University on the programme a couple of weeks ago, who's saying, particularly in these communities, there is an issue of trust more than anything else, and that, that, that that's got long historical roots behind it, distrust, really, in authority. So is it then uh, not having government figures, often white uh, male figures, telling people things, perhaps that wouldn't go down well, whereas perhaps people from within the community, people more like... Uh, the members of the community themselves might be more effective in conveying the message. Yes, I think there is historic uh, distrust, and particularly in respect of COVID-19, minority groups are disproportionately have been disproportionately impacted by COVID-19 cases. Number one, uh, and number two, deaths. Uh, for example, as I say, I come from a Bangladesh community where twice or three times more likely to die from COVID-19 than the wider uh, country. So getting figures, uh, respected figures uh, within community, that might mean religious leaders, community leaders, to convey the message is very important. The other important element is where you deliver it. So within religious institutions, I had a great suggestion from someone within the black community who said, actually, uh, 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 bring a uh, vaccine pop-up in a hair salon where a lot of us gather and you might have the uh, you might have the uptake the third mm-hmm. one is really about conveying information so one of the campaign's big calls is we want there to be a national vaccination helpline a helpline where yeah. people have lots of questions at the moment but conveying that message in different languages is absolutely key Yes, I, I wanted to ask you about that that hotline. I mean, Priti Patel saying, you know, people cannot be duped into believing that the jabs are not safe, but, but you actually want something much more practical. Is there any sort of support for that briefly? Absolutely. I mean, what we've been doing, we've, we've, we've met, I mean, we, we've written, for example, to every politician in Parliament, actually, in the House of Lords, House of Commons. We've got, we've received overwhelming cross-party support. The government uh, actually last night uh, announced that there's a form of a hotline for those over 70. But what we're calling for is something a bit more uh, broader and that serves all communities. So if anyone has a concern, so for example, uh, there's a new strain out, uh, uh, the 
the South African variant. We assume just because the media cover it, everyone understands it. But people don't understand that this is quite technical uh, to the, the fact that there's different variants and different vaccines not uh, deal with it. What we're saying is a national vaccination helpline, simple line where anyone can call up, get that information, would be quite revolutionary. Bloomberg Westminster. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.